Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. And now it seems like we're live. Okay. So people can can hear us, hopefully see us on YouTube. I, I've got to say, like I got the Starlink delivered and it's just not in time because it's horrible weather here in Victoria, or at least where I am today. And so if I happen to cut out, um, I don't have a redundancy. So we'll, we'll find out what happens. But anyway, mate, welcome to the show. How are you going? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, it's, uh, it's, it was the first full week of reopening here so in Vic. So really excited. And today we get more privileges being Friday, the 29th of October. We um, Apparently, I, was just, I just heard from Kate Campbell, my co-host on the finance podcast, that from tonight onwards, we can actually walk around Victoria without a mask outside. So that's that's really nice. Do you have those privileges? Wow. I feel like you do. Yeah, I don't. I, I, you know, you should just go bonkers and crazy and just try to find parking. Maybe you can't find parking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we can walk outside without masks. Uh, we still have to wear masks indoors uh, in indoor retail settings. I'll be honest, I've not visited a restaurant or a cafe yet. <laughs> still, did you get, you haven't got a coffee yet? I just make coffee at home, Nespresso. You're a changed man. See what COVID does. It, um... Yeah, like, you know, I, I, I'm going to try to get a haircut, but that's really about it. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. And for some people, uh, coming out of lockdown hasn't really changed that much, right? Because you and I have the privilege of working from home basically whenever we want to all the time, slash all the time. So it hasn't really changed from that respect. So, you know, working from home, I think there was a comment that I heard the other day, though, some people are confused uh, whether it's working from home or whether it's, um, you know, the difference. You don't know the difference between if you're working in your in your study or if you're working in your bedroom. And I think people don't know the difference between that and it can become unhealthy. So for some people, it's going to be great to get out of, get out of lockdown and, and back into an office. Um, but 
vacancy rates are still really high. Anyway, what have you been working on this past week, mate? Yeah, we're coming up to the 1st of November. Oh. Ooh, well, recommendations, recommendations, recommendations. So working on uh, new rec for November. We had a we had a team call, we discussed our recs. We had some fiery debates this time. So these team calls, you know, for the team calls are going to be very interesting for those people who actually watch these things. We, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting uh, team call. Uh, pretty fiery, strong debates um, this time, which is which is always exciting. I like I love those. You know, when there's this difference in opinion and you know somebody thinks it's really a bad wreck and somebody thinks it's a really a good wreck right and the, uh, you know that variant perceptions you know really yeah, works really well and, but what are they what what are, when someone does get really fired up or really animated with someone else's recommendation what are, what are the kind of questions or points of view that they they share is it just they think from their with their domain expertise they don't think that sector or that theme is worth you know or is going to shake out differently yeah. So sometimes what happens is like, you know, like, let's say like, I'll give, you know, I'll try to give an example without really giving out anything. Um, so let's say I pick a SaaS company, right? And there are a number of people in the team who have SaaS competencies, right? So I might pick a SaaS company and Simon might have uh, something to say about that because he has probably looked into it. Or Steve might have something to say about that because he has looked into it. Or even Matt Cochrane has looked into it and he has something to say about it, right? And there might be something that I might have missed or there might be different interpretation. Even it's not a question of missing it, right? There's a different, often you can interpret the same thing differently, right? So uh, we might talk about this or we might not, like we were having a debate on our Slack channels internally. And so Facebook metaverse, like you could spin it positively, you can spin it negatively. (laughs) You could be ambivalent towards it. And there's so many different ways to look at the same thing, right? And it's just interesting. I find it interesting that we can have these different opinions. And then, you know, people generally don't change their view, right? But you can temper your view a little bit. And I think I find that useful. If you have a position or if you want to have a position in a company, that's, I think, a useful thing to have. Also, it's useful to have this belief and understanding of what is going on and how you think it things might shape out if you have positions, if you're interested in the general area, right? So I might not hold Facebook, but I'm generally interested in that whole area. Not, you know, I'm not, you know, whether it's ad tech or ads or games or, you know, augmented reality or virtual reality. I'm interested in space because that space is huge, right? And there are many companies in that space that might be worth thinking about. So it's just a good thing to talk about because you learn something. And sometimes you hear about opinions and, you know, things and that, you know, I'm, I'm a very big believer in understanding how individuals are thinking about a company. And the reason I find that interesting is, and that's why I find Twitter very interesting is it tells you how a bunch of investors are thinking in, in, in a way that you can't otherwise get. And that behavioral psychology can sometimes be actually very useful. Right. It's useful when there's the strong variant perception or strong bearish bullish comments. Uh, then you can actually use it to your advantage if you think you have an edge. Right? Again, it might not work out. But again, it's, I think it's you know, it's a, investing is not just science. Right? It's not science at all. It's an art form in many ways, and understanding behavior is is a part of that. We have, this is a t- totally different. This is a left of field example, but how it relates is is quite interesting. Kate and I in, on the other podcast channel, we were talking about how there was a blog and a survey done by the CFA Institute, and it basically showed that the way we interact with money from the ages of about I think it's about fourteen up to twenty one, or thereabouts, are actually the most um, formative for how we later on invest and how we think about investing money, and. Um, Morgan Housel did something similar when he did that microcap club conference where he talked about what other industries teach us about investing. He said that if you grew up in the 70s with high inflation in the 80s, you would invest in you know bonds and those types of things. If you grew up in the depression era, you'd just have your money in cash. And if you grew up in the 90s, you'd have your money in uh, stocks. And so I think the environment in which we kind of analyze investments is what makes the market, right? So it's a bit of nature, a bit of nurture, perhaps, but um, I think the environment and how we those in, those tools that we're given in our philosophy um, really is where the art of investing comes in. And I find that is really the case with the, the new technologies and, and thematic investing because you, what we see, our truth, is different to what someone else's truth could be. And so that it's it's actually fascinating. Like we can have um, two different opinions, but at the end of the day. 
oftentimes it doesn't matter what we think, it actually matters what happens. And I think one of the, you mentioned mental models and, and kind of trying to get to the bottom of that. I think debating it with someone is really, really positive and also just inverting it yourself um, if you don't have someone to debate it with. So what could go wrong? What sucks? You know, what's what's the downside, basically? I think that's a great tendency amongst, as a common tendency amongst great investors. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think the only only caveat I have is that you want to debate, but you don't want to talk yourself out of everything. It's very easy to talk yourself out of everything, right? So and a lot of investors do that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of, you know, because bare points are easy to come up with, right? But it's the question is, are those really the valid bare points? And again, this is this is like, you know, this this comes with experience and, you know, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, right? It, it comes with experience. It comes with your point of view and those examples that you gave, right? In my time frame, what you saw, your, your, your perspective is going to define that, right? So it's cool. Very cool. Yeah, I spoke to, um, during the week, I spoke to an investor by the name of Julia Forrest, and she's a, a, a REIT investor and um, property investor. Um, and she's actually appearing on the Australian Investors Podcast next Wednesday. And uh, she basically came into the industry in the early 90s here in Australia when there was the recession that we had to have. And that's basically stuck with her the whole time. And so now she invests, she acknowledges that she invests in a very conservative way. And the only thing that she can think of is that it's still, it's the legacy of her initial introduction to investing into the industry. And so, you know, those things stay with us. And that then when you have debates, someone's looking at it through that lens. And then I look at it through my lens, whereas I started my career with The Motley Fool. And, um, you know, it was all very positive, invest in great companies. We're in a bull market. So my first interaction with investing is actually very positive and very long-term optimistic. And I think that's, you know, if I was to debate with someone like Julia, that would probably be a very different conversation. But interesting, always interesting. Okay, if people want to ask their questions, we've got a heap of questions and topics coming through Twitter today. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, we'll try and get to some of those things, but we already have our plate full with US Tech. Our One of our favorite companies, which is Apple, uh, reported some results. And um, that was just this morning as we record this here in Australia. So we'll get into those. Uh, we've got Alphabet, we've got Facebook slash Meta, uh, which is which is fascinating. We've got some Australian companies in here too. If you want to ask your questions, you can throw them into the uh, YouTube live chat on the Rask Australia YouTube page. There was one question that came through in advance, mate, and I thought maybe we can just just really quickly riff on this one. And it comes from Charles, who says, great podcast. Thank you. Have you or could you discuss your favorite tools of the trade to source data, charts, slash do research, trade, whatever, um, both domestic and international? Your insights would be appreciated. So I don't know if there are any some, you know, any just off the top of your head, some we get information, we get, if you use data, whatever. I know Seven Investing include a little data pack when uh, they give out, rec- when you guys give out recommendations, which I think is great too. Uh, so I I use, uh, this. I think you've mentioned this before in the podcast, I use Tikka, uh, T-I-K-R. You know, they provide uh, data, they provide access to transcripts. Yeah, so I mean, that's, uh, that's you know, they have insider holdings information, they have holdings of various funds. So that's one tool that I use. I use Ycharts as well sometimes. They have beautiful data and charting. Ycharts is, I believe, mostly US. Actually, I don't think I've seen any ASX or anything else there. It's US yeah, only. I can't remember I think it's US only, whereas Ticker uh, has everything. I think it's got ASX and stuff like that in it as well. Other than that, really, my other source is um, my phone, my iPhone's stock app, <laughs> because that links to various articles. And that, you know, it's a very quick way to see what's going on. Like, you know, people have an opinion. Somebody wrote an article, something got published in news media. You can very quickly have a browse to see what's going on. You don't have to believe it as the, you know, the truth, but, you know, but you can at least have a look. So that's something that I do. What else is there? Um, and then, of course, if I need to look at something, I go to the uh, the information source. So investor relations web pages are the place to go to. So, you know, if I'm looking at a US company for quarterly results, I'll look at 10Q. Uh, if I'm looking at annual results, I'll look at the 10K. If not the press release, the slide deck provided by the by the company. Those are sort of my basic toolkit things. I, I'm not, you know, I'll say this, this might sound odd. There's no magical tool out there that gives out good ideas. There's no magical tool out there uh, that, uh, you know, gives out, you know, there's this thinking that, you know, a lot of data is useful. Actually, a lot of data is not necessarily useful because you're just going to be confused. 
right? And there are these tools that you can get to get return of invested capital, return on invested capital, this, that, PE, and so on and so forth. All that stuff is actually not very useful in my, you know, everyone starts there, I think, but sooner or later you realize that kind of you need to make decisions more qualitatively than quantitatively, right? And if you want to make quantitative decisions, I personally, I find just simple run of the, you know, back of the envelope stuff is better and easier, less mistakes. You know, I, I like to quote George Box, you know, all models are wrong, but only some models are useful. Uh, so you want to make the models useful, uh, not necessarily accurate, uh, because by, by definition, models make assumptions, right? So anyway, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 we've talked a little bit about the, the qualitative side of investing versus quantitative um, in the past. So it's, it's a great question and great talking points and a good answer from you, mate. I use Ticker. I, I probably use it that's probably my primary data source. And in Australia, if you want announcements, you can go to something like um, Market Index, which is powered by um, Iguana. So you can you can just go down to the announcements section there, uh, which is really helpful. And um, if you're in the US, you can get on CNBC or Bloomberg. It's actually a great thing. Um, I do like to do it in the mornings, like if I'm doing a morning stretch or something, um, I might put on Bloomberg on my smart TV. There's a, a Bloomberg Live app um, in the marketplace that you can get, it's free. Um, it's all the Bloomberg information coming out of the US and, and global markets. I think by the time you get up here in Australia, you get the back end of the US markets, you get the tech show, and then you get the start of the Asia Pacific and um, some leftovers from the UK. So it's really interesting for a global perspective. So there's lots to go on there. Um, great question from Charles. You can write into us if you want. You can hit us up on Twitter, um, which is at 7A Mahanthi and at Owen Rask. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We love talking about everything to do with investing. So find us on Twitter and say good day. So we've got a lot to talk about today. You brought up one of those things, which is Facebook's metaverse. Company came out and reported results this week. Maybe we can um, just riff on that a bit because um, the equity force has written into us on YouTube here. And he says, um, will Facebook be in the biggest migration, be successful in the biggest migration of old millennials to metaverse? And the second question is, could you please talk about competition in meta like in meta likes of Decentraland, et cetera? So yeah, it's a it's a big thing. This metaverse shift from Facebook came out yesterday, basically saying that Facebook is going to be rebranded as Meta. So this is the um, the, the corporate business, similar to how Google, Google's parent company changed to Alphabet. Facebook is now under Mark Zuckerberg focusing on the metaverse, which is basically Instead of just seeing the internet through a browser, you are in the internet, so to speak, um, and you can interact, you can buy clothes for yourself and your metaverse self. One of the things that I pulled out of the, the chat, mate, uh, or the, the transcript from the Facebook call was that this was the first time I think Facebook had put a number around what's probably possible in the metaverse. It's all very up in the air. As you said, it could go one way or the other. But one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg said is there would be hundreds of, I think he said hundreds of billions of dollars of daily commerce on the metaverse. And that's not to say advertising, but just general things that people will be doing. So I guess maybe if we can talk about will Facebook be successful in your opinion, um, but also just, just to maybe intro it, what is the metaverse? Uh, so right now, <laughs> I don't know, actually know how to define metaverse, right? Because there is nothing of it that exists, right? Currently. So, you know, uh, you can think about people selling digital. Well, there's some version of that, right? So people buy digital goods on things like Roblox. You know, there's apps inside apps. That's Roblox example. Minecraft is another example, right? So that's sort of the using a platform as sort of a venue to transact, do things and create other experiences, right? So you can think of avatars. That's how I think about it, right? But to me, without so I, I had a sarcastic tweet out today saying that voice was supposed to be the next platform and it was not, <laughs> right? And voice was more well-defined <laughs> at that time. Uh, metaverse is very ill-defined at this time. And uh, certainly to me, it doesn't look like it's going to be the next platform. So um, it could be that people are selling digital goods, uh, you know, and people are buying $100 JPEGs. <laughs> $200 JPEGs. Who knows? It could away. be a lot more expensive <laughs> based on yeah. what we've seen recently. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's, it could be a lot of what I call rubbish <laughs> uh, out there uh, to create sort of a different online world. And so, you know, my take is that uh, let, me, let me answer this differently. Right now, I don't know what metaverse actually means. 
maybe it's all in Zuckerberg's mind. Uh, all good. The other thing is that I really have a distaste for corporate uh, rebranding. And I'll, I'll say why. So Google rebranded to Alphabet. What changed? Everything under, except for Google and YouTube, is basically a failure in my mind. <laughs> so Alphabet's other category basically doesn't exist, <laughs> right? You can call it whatever you want. You can call it Alphabet, Greek letter soup, whatever you want to call it, chicken soup. It doesn't matter. It's still Google search ads, right? So my take on this is a very simple one. I think paradigm shift in how people do things is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. It's also a very iterative process and it's not, it's very difficult to make that fundamental shift happen, which is why I think voice didn't happen, right? People have been at voice for a long time and nobody's really figured it out as a platform to do stuff. So what did we land up with? We landed up with a bunch of speakers, which can either play music, <laughs> some play good music, some play bad music, <laughs> and they are good timers. So, you know, our, our home pods have a lot of timers on them, probably 1000 of them. That's what they really do, <laughs> right? So they're not a computing platform at all. And I feel like right now the technology is not ripe enough, whether it's hardware, software, and to enable something else. What that next, so I think what they're going for is trying to be the next platform. And that's a very difficult gig to be in, right? So uh, that's my take on what it means. And to me, it's, it's basically a corporate rebranding, which is good for, which I think is the right thing to do for them. I, th I think if I was Facebook, I would be doing these things because it makes sense to do a corporate rebranding given that your brand has been tainted, shamed and whatnot, right? So you rebrand your, your, uh, yourself to something else. That gives you a lot of buzz and that's great. And maybe, you know, shareholders forget about it and move on. And then you continue tinkering with Oculus and virtual reality and everything else and gaming and esports. But that doesn't become your business. Your business still is selling ads on those platforms, right? And getting people to come to those platforms to spend their time or waste their time, whatever, however you want to look at it, right? But that is the business. And that I think does not change. And I, I have seen nothing as proof of change. So that's my critical view of it because, you know, I have not seen any product. I'm not saying product. And then the final thing is that a company that sells free for it to sell something, if it needs a hardware element to it, to sell something at a premium price, which is because any new, new experience is going to be at a premium price. It's extremely hard, right? Selling a, you know, how many Oculus headsets are they going to be able to sell? You know, because people are used to free from Facebook. They're not used to, you know, it's, it reminds me of the Facebook, whatever uh, console or stuff that, we have forgotten about, right? Facebook had something that was like a camera and stuff like that. Before that, Facebook also had a phone, if people remember. So people, you know, uh, so if this is hardware play, then I don't know what it is. And if it is a software play, I still don't know <laughs> what it is. Um, so that's my take. I, I, think it, I think from a corporate point of view, it makes sense. A, for them to spend money, it makes sense. And this is, you know, although I said a lot of negative things, this doesn't take away anything from their free cash flow. It's a very free cash flow generative business. Continue generating those free cash flow. And, you know, they can miss five different things and they'll still be okay. Like Microsoft is a great example. So I think as a business, they're fine, but I am not buying the hype cycle of the metaverse or any other verse or whatever verse it is. I'm just not buying it. I've seen enough of these to say that, well, you know, uh, <laughs> sh show me something. No, but I'll take your take on this. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, right? Because uh, they're committing to investing $10 billion basically a year. Um, that's what they're already at. And it looks like they're going to keep accelerating that spend, which is huge. But the thing that I, I guess is challenging and the reason why so many of us don't know exactly where this goes is that to become the platform of the metaverse, as I understand it, um, you would effectively have to have the hardware in place, but the infrastructure layer has to be there. Um, and then everyone has to build onto that infrastructure layer and design apps, environments, et cetera. So there has to be protocols for that. And then you have to have someone or something that comes in as basically abstraction and sits on the top and designs things that people want to purchase. So for example, I think things like 
you know, I think some of the most successful platform ecosystems over time, not all of them, but many of them are open source in this way, like the internet in this, in a, in a way, is it's free to use the internet um, as it is. And, you know, if we look at, say, um, I don't know, maybe like an eco- ecosystem, like, say, WordPress, that's a, a, the way that was successful was by allowing open source as the underlying ar- um, architecture and then building on top of that. Um, and so I think maybe... I, I just don't know. I don't think we know enough about how Facebook sees that playing out in terms of where do they sit in that layer and how do they monetize that really effectively. They said it's going to be in the back half of the decade where there's a business case. And, you know, for example, if, if you have um, a, an, an avatar version of yourself in the metaverse, I can't imagine that. It, I can't understand why it should cost you to put a different skin on your character, for example, whereas, say, in gaming as we know it today, where typically, let's say, you play Call of Duty or one of these um, multiplayer games online, typically the way those are monetized is through microtransactions where you, you get a better skin, you get a better a look and feel of your character. So I don't think that necessarily is the way we should be thinking about it. I, I just don't know, to be honest. Um, Virtuoso Consulting on YouTube said, the bigger worry is what should we call Fang now? Top choices are Magma, Gamma, Mama, or if maybe we can rename Google too. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, just in terms of Facebook being successful with millennials, I think it's been uh, it's been a challenge for the company over the last few years, even as kind of Instagram ages out. I don't know what takes the shape, whether that's people meeting online, talking like younger people meeting online in games and virtual environments and communicating that way. I think the days of you looking down at your phone and you're jumping on a social media app are probably... I think it's probably a bit dated for the younger demographic. So I think it will be more immersive that next experience. So Facebook may be there, but it may not be there. Um, and then, like you said, they may miss this one. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. That's Facebook changing to meta. I, I, have a quick, I have a quick comment about that Fang, Mang, whatever is going on. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah, a couple yeah. of corrections on that. Number one, we should ignore the non-trillion dollar companies. So Netflix is out, Facebook is out. Uh, and we now need to think about those companies which have huge TAM. So if you think about the companies with huge TAM with trillion dollar market caps, then you can have a, um, a caption called TAM with a lot of A's in the middle. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, anyways, that was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, so Sam McDonald says, Meta World Peace was already taken to Zucker's Digest. Uh, Ron... Ron Artest pipped me by about a decade. Okay, so we've got Apple to talk about too, mate. Apple came out this morning and released some results, quarterly report, fourth quarter. Basically, supply chain cost them about $6 billion, they estimate. But still, massive, massive numbers from Apple. Just enormous numbers. Uh, I know we're, we're obviously we're a couple of fanboys for Apple, but huge numbers, huge numbers. Um, first impression? 9% growth, right? Yeah. And that's with, without the $6 billion. Yeah. Yeah, it's a small cap. It's a, it's small, a small cap. cap. It's a small cap company, uh, which was in some billions. And then uh, what, what was the other thing? Oh, the EPS. I don't know if people saw this. Nobody Actually, Apple never puts, out of shame, it never puts its EPS growth numbers. I just calculated. It was like 65% for the quarter. Wow. Well, I didn't calculate it either, so I'm just looking yeah, at it now. Because Apple yeah, never right. puts it in. Like, I don't know why they put it there. Like, you know, Tim Cook is stupid. <laughs> he should, like, you know, come on. <laughs> so, like, yeah, the little small cap uh, called Apple just cut 60% something growth. Uh, I think 0.74 was the EPS. It was, like, 1.3 something. <laughs> or 1.24 was the EPS this quarter. Um, yeah. I thought, I'll just say, I had only one word uh, for the quarter. I thought it was fabulous. And this is a company that exactly knows what it is doing. And the reason nobody appreciates it is it doesn't talk about what it is doing behind the scene like some other companies, which talk about things that they haven't yet cooked, but they'll, you know, they're going to cook in the next decade. Maybe, maybe not cook. This is a company that only tells you stuff that has fully cooked. <laughs> it doesn't tell you what it is making in the next decade because that, you know, why talk about stuff that you have not yet built? Uh, it talks about stuff that it's building right now. So I thought it was a fabulous quarter. I have, I'll let you go first. I have some, uh, I'll let you go first. And then if uh, I have some interesting, I think there was some interesting commentary in the call. So if you have your shares, and then if you don't cover them, I'll cover some of them. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll just jump into sharing my screen for those of you that are watching. This will make sense. So just as a quick quick highlight from the financials, 
um, we can see total sales of $365 billion over the year uh, for the quarter. That's 83. Gross margin still incredibly strong, $152.8 billion gross margin. So insane. It was really, you know, as you can see here, this is the diluted earnings per share of $5.61 up from $3.28 a year ago. And keep in mind, this is during COVID when they were still punching records. So really, really interesting. What I thought is really just, if you take if you take your mind back to two years ago, three years ago, the China story was really uncertain. So I've just highlighted that here, $68 billion of full year revenue from China, um, up from $40 billion. Huge numbers in China. Um, when you consider that market, it's still got such a long way to go as well. And finally, just as a high level, we're looking at services revenue down here. For the quarter, it was $18.3 billion, up from 14 and a half a year ago. Um, but over the full year, $68 billion of service revenue. Why is that important? Because the service revenue is oh so sticky, super wide margin. And that comes from all different things like App Store. And one of the big things that they called out in this quarter, which I thought was interesting because I can't remember them calling it out recently, which was advertising. And so we've seen a big shift in the mix. Obviously, the iOS changes have come through. Facebook was actually a kind of a victim of those changes. Google seemed to just pass that by. But um, one of the things that was really interesting was, yeah, they called that out today. They've got 745, I believe it's 745 million subscriptions, paid subscriptions, I think. So out of 160 in a year, 160 million in one year. So that was probably my highlight is just the ongoing growth in the services. This is nothing new for those investors that have been following it for a while. This transition has been happening for at least probably four or five years. But it's, yeah, it's a huge business. Pay the dividend too if you're inter interested in that. It's pretty nominal at these, these valuations. But um, yeah, I thought it was just tremendous, a tremendous quarter, even though we had that $6 billion. It looks like it's going to be a bit more painful in the next quarter when obviously it's a big quarter for them coming up. So that was just a high level stuff. I'm interested. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't cover a lot from the call just now. So I'm interested in what you come up with. Yeah, so a couple of things. So number one, for the for the forward guidance. So they're still calling for double-digit growth next quarter, which was on top, if you have to remember, it was on top of like some 40% growth the previous year in that same quarter, right? So this is like a big business becoming bigger. They're seeing very robust demand for their uh, new products. And the issue is, it seems, is a supply side issue. That brings me to an interesting thing about what's going on with the supply chain. So there's a lot of supply chain, a lot of talk about chip shortages and things like that. So what, you know, Tim Cook, being a supply chain genius, he, is, he basically talked about this. He basically said, look, we are seeing, actually, they're seeing shortages, which is, this is, which is interesting. They're seeing shortages in not the leading edge chips because they probably get priority on the leading edge chips because they probably pay more. So there's no shortage really on the leading edge side. There's shortage on sort of what's just behind that, uh, you know, and because there's a lot of competition for those chips. And what his take was that what happened during COVID, and this is an interesting take actually on the entire COVID economy uh, and, you know, what happened with companies. And we've seen this a number of times in results in, in Australian companies as well, right? So the general take for companies during COVID was <laughs> demand is going to shrink and therefore they pulled back on orders and pulled back on stuff. But demand actually increased because people had nowhere to spend their money on. So then you got this into a supply chain imbalance. Combine that with factories being closed. Closed. There's been a huge imbalance in the supply chain altogether. Uh, what Cook is saying is that some of that is starting to resolve, but there's still plenty of demand. There's de increasing demand at the high end because of newer chips that are coming and everybody who's making new chips that's putting demand. There's a, there's a CapEx issue there. And on the other side, there's still, you know, some normalization to go through and some supply chain things to, you know, so he thinks those things will iron out, but not yet. And then the final thing that this, he's saying was, I think they're saying more demand than they probably expected for some of their recent products, which talks to us strength of just the, the entire brand and the ecosystem and, the, and, and a lot of switching happening, probably more than that, more than what they expected. Yeah, it makes sense, you know, with the M1 series, for example, I can expect a lot of switching happening between, you know, surface laptops to people coming to Macs. It's just a different experience altogether. And once you're in this ecosystem, then there's like, you know, there's all sorts of other things that people are going to buy. So those are some of the interesting things I thought, you know, so they're guiding for a really strong quarter, um, you know, which is still supply chain constraint. So anyways. I thought that was a really interesting comment that you made there about 
he was asked on the call, Tim was asked on the call about how is the mix of iPhone, the iPhone 13 in particular, uh, is it switches, is it upgraders, what's going on? And he called back to last quarter where he said it was double digits for both. And this quarter, he seems to suggest, this bit early for the 13, but he seems to suggest that it could be the similar mix in terms of people still switching, um, which is huge because this is all part of Apple's, the, the appeal of Apple products, which we've talked about numerous times is, once you are using the iPhone, you're more likely to use the Mac, you're more likely to get the AirPods and you're in the ecosystem. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years down the track, you're, you're an avid user of the services business too. So this is all just, you know, if we talk about cohort analysis, we talk about, you know, dollar-based net retention, it's a bit harder with a company like Apple, but it is kind of qualitatively, it's there too. Um, we spend more, we upgrade, and then we get the feed in from the switches too. So really fascinating stuff. Um, I thought, you know, as we look out the quarter ahead and the uncertainty um, that they kind of, they reassured us that it was, it was positive, but there is uncertainty. I think it's broadly positive. And I think this update was really strong, even if the shares come off a little bit after hours. So I'm a happy shareholder. Apple is actually one of my biggest personal positions and I'm, I'm quite happy to keep it that way. Shares are up, I think, 30% or so year to date. And they were up like my, my colleague, Steve Simington, had an, and he said, you know, the shares are down maybe 3% in after hours, but they were up 2.5% during the regular days. It's like net, net, it's not much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's true. I think people tend to think that the market's insight as soon as results are released or something is announced are indicative of how, much, how, how high quality that announcement was. Not necessarily, you know, we've talked about this before, you've, you know, I've had conversations on this in the past, but you know, we when we see read the news, we say Apple failed to beat expectations and or failed to hit analyst targets. But at the end of the day, it's analysts that kind of get it wrong, not the other way around. So um, something to keep in mind. I think that was that was um, a really strong quarter. Okay, so the other one um, which I might go through a bit quickly today is a company that we covered in the past, which is a company called Dubber. It's an Australian company. I'll see if I can bring that up for you just on the screen here, so I don't mince my numbers, but uh, Dubber's come out with its quarterly activities report here in Australia. We call that a 4C. So, you know, you can see some numbers here that are pretty positive on the screen, but so what does Dubber do? Dubber is a, um, a voice recording and intelligence company. So basically they take data in, voice data in, and they turn that into something meaningful. So uh, we gave the example a few months ago of um, an airline during COVID. Um, all the calls are recorded, recorded for quality and assurance purposes. And um, the employer of the airline could actually assess their frontline workers because obviously they were getting so many negative calls coming through. Hey, my flight's cancelled. Why have I got, I got a refund? And that can take its toll on workplace morale, especially if you're in a distributed workforce. And so that, that uh, airline could use Dubber's software to basically run sentiment analysis to see how their staff are feeling. Um, and that was a, that's a really interesting use case. So... Dubber came out today. It's basically said, I, I've highlighted things that are interesting for me, but um, they've said revenue was up um, to $8.1 million for the quarter. Um, I don't know why they use brackets um, around increased by and then brackets 700K. Whenever I see brackets in accounting, I think negative. So it's it just threw me a little bit, but uh, uh, they said the subscribers now exceed 450,000. So that can be a subscriber through an enterprise. It can be a subscriber through like, say if you use Telstra, and you want voice recording on your device, um, you could be a subscriber. One of the big things that Dub has been pushing with recently is um, basically forging deals that uh, enable it to kind of unlock multiples of its current addressable market um, in one stroke. So what I mean by that is they partner with the telco to bring voice recording, cloud voice recording to that. Another thing that they've done recently is partnered with uh, Cisco's WebEx and basically made it as a default voice recording package in Cisco WebEx. And you can get it in Zoom. We're using Zoom right now as in the marketplace for Zoom as well. So you can use Dubber to record calls and transcribe calls and, and use all that dashboard in the cloud. So there's, there's a fair bit to go on here. I think one of the things that I might say, I own shares in Dubber, but one of the things that I might say as just a word of caution is that the com companies like to talk about organic growth and we as analysts and investors typically say, oh, yeah, you know, they made an acquisition this year, therefore we'll exclude that, but then everything else is organic growth. If they made an acquisition last year, that can still be acquired growth. And so 
yes, you might exclude one acquisition that made one acquisition here, a small one. But keep in mind that even if they're growing fast this year, that could be the result of the acquisition in the last quarter of last year, for example. And so that's not necessarily organic growth. And so one of the things that I'm struggling to reconcile with Dubber is how fast is its actual underlying call recording business growing? Uh, we can see some charts here that show pretty promising signs going bottom left to top right. But I mean, don't they all? So I just wanted to put that out there as kind of a, an air of skepticism. The company has $126 million of cash in the bank. Keep in mind, they like to make acquisitions and they just did a $110 million cap raise and cash is going out the door currently while they scale. So some things to keep in mind, that's ASX, DUB, Dubber operates in voice recording. So I don't know if you've had a look at this company or you know it that well, but um, like I said, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of a higher risk investment. I know of this company and I've looked at it in the past. I haven't looked at this for you, but I think you covered everything. So there's nothing more for me to add. Cool. That's easy then. We can move on. I might throw it over to you, mate. Um, Amazon. I actually haven't had a look at the, 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 re the report yet. So tell us a little bit about what Amazon reported. Yeah. So I think uh, Amazon, uh, let me I'm just trying to get the Amazon's report. The slides up. Um, do, 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 do. Listen, I feel like I've heard of this company before. Uh, so I think the the main main thing that is worth keeping in mind on keeping an eye on was a the net sales were up a bit, you know, fifteen percent, which is not bad for that scale. Uh, but their guiding their guidance forward was a bit weak, which is something to keep an eye on. And again, that sort of technically makes sense. So there's, you know, if you think about all the supply chain issues, production issues, combine that with people, you know, shifting some of that online buying that they're doing back to physical retail, or maybe just going traveling or doing other things. It, it makes sense. It doesn't take away anything. There's a bit of, you know, and of course, uh, e-commerce is heavily competitive as well. The, my main takeaway is I always pay a lot of attention to their AWS numbers. And the AWS sales were actually, there was some, a bit of acceleration there. Uh, I think last quarter was like 37, 38% growth. This, this time it was like 39% growth. And so this is the AWS net sales or you know, revenue was 16.1 billion. And that's a very, very large number in one quarter. And that's still growing. You know, it's just a tad under 40%, right? And uh, now we've seen higher growth numbers from people like Alphabet who reported like something like 5 billion for their cloud unit, but that's, you know, um, uh, and they said 47% or something like that growth for GCP, but they don't break out Google Cloud Computing uh, or Google Cloud Platform. But let's say it's 80% of that total cloud package, right? I mean, you know, that's a significantly smaller business growing a little bit faster than these guys. But, you know, I think a lot of credit is is due here. And I think the similarly high number was, you know, something around between 40 and 50% was quoted by Microsoft. Again, they don't give you the exact sales figure for uh, for their Azure side. But again, that's fast growing. So, you know, my guess is Azure is number two, you know, probably somewhere in half of the size of uh, AWS. And this one is probably a quarter of the size. The GCPs, you know, the Google Cloud platforms, one quarter of the size of Amazon. So Amazon should get a lot of credit for how it is tackling the competition, increased competition in the cloud, and it's doing really well. So, yeah. So, you know, as usual, I was, you know, I think e-commerce is has got a long tailwind behind it. So they'll be just fine over time. We shouldn't expect very high growth numbers anyways from a retail business. It's also a low margin business. But I think this side of the business is doing really well. Mm. Yeah, it's um, those numbers. I'm just looking at them now. Basically, operating income looks like it's a, a margin of around about 25% on AWS alone. And if it's growing so fast and as it scales, it's just a vicious business and it's starkly in contrast to the kind of e-commerce business that we know it's really low margin not really i mean it is recurring but it's a different type of business model um whereas aws is yeah fruitful and a long way to go from the tam estimates that i've seen around the traps is anything to go by the massive shift to the cloud is still in full effect we are still in that s curve fascinating results mate i think we yeah i think it's a, it's a really interesting business do you own shares in amazon i don't uh, I do. I have shares in Amazon and Apple. Apple, yep, yep. Um, the, there are, there's one more company that we'll talk about in just a moment, which I do own shares in. But there is well, there was a really interesting thing here in Australia, which I might call out, which is a company called Vulcan, Vulcan uh, Energy, which is a, a geothermal company. I first came across, actually, about two weeks ago, 
when I was asked to go on the on the telly and talk about a few companies, and one of those companies was Vulcan, and it's a it's a geothermal energy company with a project in in Germany, and I think one of the big selling points is that there are some pretty serious there are some pretty serious kind of backers of the company, and so the company went into a trading halt this week, um, and you can see an article here on our website by Lachlan. And basically, J Capital, which is a short selling company, has come out and said, we think management's estimates of Vulcan Energy's business model is actually a lot lower. It's materially. So management have said the project is worth so much money um, over in Germany and it's going to get off the ground in a few years. But bear with us because it will be really high margin um, extraction, really good flow rates, et cetera, et cetera. And um, J Cap's come out and said, well, everyone else in the near nearby you know all the other competitors nearby don't achieve those rates um, of growth and they don't achieve those flow rates for the geothermal plants so how can you make that assessment and that's basically been challenged and the company's gone straight into a trading halt and you can see here that you know over the past year or so um, the company has just accelerated in terms of share prices so over let's take from this is a bit longer back and so the beginning of say uh, 2020, uh, 15 cents a share, the company's now $15 a share. So you can do the math there. There's been some um, very wealthy investors out of this one. But what's important to note is by my numbers, most recently, the company had a market cap of around about 1.6 billion Aussie. And, you know, I don't think it was really any revenue at all. So, you know, this is still a business. So $1.86 billion market cap and effectively no revenue. That's what's written here on Mass Media. So this is a business that um, is, a, is another kind of target of a short attack. Oh, I shouldn't say short attack. It's not a short attack. It's a short report. And basically, they've come out and said, listen, your project, it, it might be good, but it's still a long way off and it's probably not as good as you suggest it is. And given your valuation is this high, um, maybe it's, you know, maybe this is not a good thing for investors and maybe investors should cool off a bit um, is effectively the rhetoric Um Typically, what happens in the case of a short report is the company releases an announcement to say, to discredit, oftentimes to discredit the short report. Um, and it seems that that kind of has happened here, basically pointed out that maybe they, maybe the shorters don't have the experience uh, in the industry. Um, no, I'm not, I'm, this is just, I'm just kind of paraphrasing what I interpreted the ASX announcement to mean. Um, the company has, I believe, now come out of a, a out of its trading halt this morning. I'm just going to double check that, um, and it looks like it's come out this morning and fallen about 14%. Um, so maybe it was just enough to spook some investors. Um, maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe there was a little bit of the truth in there. Maybe there's who knows who's telling the truth. I think when you're an investor in this type of situation and you're in such a richly valued company, and a short report comes out. You are often you often feel out of your depth. You often feel a bit like what is actually going to happen. I hate short selling. I hate you know what are they representing? Who are they acting for? And all this type of stuff. And it can be really hard if management are, are a bit cagey. Um, I think the best thing for, to do is for management to front up and try and rebuff the the short report. Um, we've seen that in the past with Rural Funds Group. They did that pretty well. Uh, Credit Corp did it here in Australia pretty well. Um, and some of the others haven't done it so well. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happens next with Vulcan Energy. I'm just kind of paraphrasing what I've interpreted the situation to be. Um, it's not a company I'm invested in, nor would I want to be invested in because it's not, a, you know, it's not free cash flow positive, all these types of things. So, um, I just say, you know, we'll see play it out. We'll just see this one play out from a distance. Um, I don't know. I don't think you'd follow this type of company very closely. A geothermal company listed in Australia operating in Germany. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not, not my type. I'm familiar with the name Jcap. They had shorted Wisetech yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but usually what happens in this, you know, um, oh, I shouldn't say shorted, they had a short report. And usually what happens is there's a short report, there's a response, and there's typically another report that would follow based on the responses of the company. It's almost like responding to, responding to something like this basically means that you're going to get into a series of, you know, back and forth, right? Uh, and it plays out in public. Um, yeah, I don't have anything to add really about this. I don't know much yeah. about it. So. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the court of um, investor opinion is, is often a volatile one if you're in the middle of it all. So, um, and, and you, you've got to remember that oftentimes there are super powerful incentives on both sides of this debate. So um, 
it's not like they're going to come out and go, oh, actually, you know what, you were right. Um, so <laughs> they're going to come out and say that because if they did, there would be, there'd be trouble. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting, um, I guess, state of affairs that investors find themselves in. I think the best thing to do is just remember why you own your investment. Um, and, you know, if you believe management are being forthright, then that's your interpretation of, of the situation and, and fair enough too. Okay, so we've got two companies that we'll, we'll try and get through here at the end. Um, one of them is uh, Alphabet, which is um, obviously a company that went through a name change quite a little while ago and uh, released its uh, third quarter report this week, mate. So um, we know Alphabet being the, the parent company of Google uh, and a heap of other things under the, under the hood. Uh, what did you make of the report? Oh, let's make this quick. The report was fantastic. So again, revenue grew 39, 39% year over year uh, for the quarter. And this this is actually some, something to remember here is what happened is that they had a relatively easier compare because unlike exceeding demand for consumer electronics and things like that and furniture and you know, lounges, actually ads <laughs> slowed down remarkably during the uh, the covid crisis so uh, you know the prior year they only grew about 14 15% which for this size of the company is perfect right i mean 20% growth 15 you know eight somewhere in that teens is pretty good um but one of the magics that we see or you know this is how it works in this sort of business is there's a lot of operating leverage right so the operating margin went from 24% in the prior year to 32% this year <laughs> because of the significant growth. They delivered 65 billion in revenue in this quarter. That's some fabulous, the, and the earnings per share diluted went from 16.4 uh, a year ago, that is dollars to 27.99. I wish they just rounded up to 28, <laughs> but out of honesty. Um, the uh, Everything, I, I, we talked about the GCP all, already. I think they're, they're doing a great job there trying to sort of you know solidify the third place position behind AWS and Azure. The only thing, I guess the, the most surprising thing for me was there are 50 million YouTube music, premium music subscribers. I would have never guessed. 50 million people actually pay for this thing, which is basically free. You're just going to tolerate some ads that you don't want. But 50 million people do pay for it, which I was surprised. That was my little takeaway <laughs> from, from the results. I thought it was Well, great. Apple came out with the, the MacBook Pros, and they, I think we talked about this previously, they did something similar with their, I mean, they've always had music and iTunes and whatever, but they brought out that kind of voice-only, like Siri-only um, music subscription. And we know Spotify, obviously, is a massive, massive player in the space too. So... Yeah, I actually, I'm actually a, um, I pay, I have a YouTube premium subscription and basically what that gets me is no ads and it also gets me the original series. Not that I ever watched, I don't think I've ever watched anything on it, but if I wanted to, I could get some uh, originals, kind of like a Netflix, but it's aimed at younger people, I think, on YouTube. Uh, I think there are a few things that are worth calling out here. Um, the first is that basically Google is going across verticals and zeroing in on the verticals where it sees that it can kind of get deeper into that ecosystem. So what I mean by that is, you know, we saw that with travel a few years ago, instead of when you when you go into search results and you have to go to the, the booking.com or, or wherever you go to, to book your flights and your hotels, you can now do that in the, uh, the, the search engine itself. And so I think that's a really powerful thing too. And as that moves across more verticals, like tourism, for example, they had one where, emerging as we reopen you can actually book activities in the physical world to do through the google search uh, engine and obviously things like google pay i think they came out and said well this is a i think this is a bit up in the air at the moment the google pay side of things um they did come out and say i think off the top of my head is around about 140 150 million people were transacting on that so that's a that's a big thing too we talk about apple pay and all those types of things uh, um, and the wallets and the like, but that's a, a meaningful business under the hood as well. And finally, you know, we've seen, I think it was Freshworks, uh, we saw Toast and uh, other companies IPO basically out of Facebook's either venture arm or its incubation arms. And, and those are really interesting things. And there was the, the interesting race um, to do drone delivery. I don't know how this is going to play out. I've never had a drone delivery uh, myself, but imagine you know, drone delivery um, from Walgreens in the US. We had it here in Canberra as well. And in, I think it was in Logan, either them or Amazon. So drone delivery is already in play. They're, it's already, you know, in motion. Drones are delivering things like 
um, cooked chickens, for example, um, is what one of the, the, the videos that I watched, it showed a, a chook being delivered from a local shop to someone in lockdown via drone. So fascinating stuff. You can even get your coffee. Um, so yeah, Google's a, a well, Alphabet is a business that I own and I, and I really like it. So I, I liked the quarter. I thought it was really impressive and I was kind of blown away by how strong it was, to be honest. I thought it'd be more impacted by iOS changes, but the scale of it, they said it was kind of negligible. So fascinating stuff. Uh, one final company, if I may sneak this in, which is a company called A2 Milk. So A2 Milk is the Australian business that, well, makes A2 Milk. It's good for your tummy, apparently. And um, we've talked about this in the past, and this is a running joke. For those of you that are new to the podcast, this is a running joke. Um, maybe we can just have a look at, I'll share my screen with you and, and we can have a look at this, mate. I don't, I don't know if it's good for me or good for you in terms of our, in terms of our uh, wager, um, but if we look at, say, A2 Milk over the past few years in terms of the share price, that's fallen very heavily. I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fallen a long way. Uh, and then if we look at, say, Treasury Wines, which was my wine, it's kind of come back, but it's fallen off a little bit as well. So basically the idea was that um, if Treasury Wines gets a takeover offer, I think you were going to be buy me a wine. If A2 Milk gets taken over, I was going to buy you some milk. I think that was the deal. But I, what was really interesting is A2 Milk came out this week and basically said that they basically come out with this report on themselves, which to me kind of looked like a brokerage report. It was a 163 slide present a page slide presentation. And basically what they've said is they've come out with ambitious forecasts, which if you look at the medium term, forecast, they're actually lower than what they were pre-COVID. So what they're saying is in the future, we're going to get back to a point which is below what we were a few years ago. Um, and there's been a lot of change since COVID and in the mix with the Daigo route into, into China and, and, and all that type of stuff. And also the margins are going to come under pressure. They were previously achieving 30% EBITDA margins and they're forecasting now uh, margins closer to, I think, 20s and the 20%. So in that range, um, basically... A2 milk is under pressure and based on forward estimates, it, even still then it's it's a little bit hard to get to, not hard to get to the valuation today, but if manage, if what management is saying is actually what they deliver, I think you would still struggle to get to the valuation today, if that makes sense. So if that's optimistic, you might be left with kind of an underperforming business in your portfolio over the next few years. So um, it's just a really tough thing we've talked about in the past, but I mean, hey, if that gets taken over for its brand, it's got a pretty strong brand. Uh, fresh milk is still being sold. Who knows? It could be a little treat arriving for you in the mail. Yeah, and and then they could, you know, create an uh, you know non fungible token for the milk and then sell that for gazillion bucks. So maybe there's a business there. Easy, easy, just just like that. So um, watch this space. Watch this space. Um, Mate, we've had a lot to talk about today and it's been heaps of fun. Um, it's always good when there's news and there's heaps of questions. We got a heap of stuff coming through on Twitter. Uh, people saying, take a look at PointsBet, E-Road, Volpara, Damstra, so many companies. Uh, Tesla, obviously, we talk about Tesla a lot, so we probably can't talk about that uh, every week. But um, Shopify would be a company that we could get to. Uh, if you want to find us, remember that you can find us on Twitter. Um, the easiest way to find us is at 7A Mahanti. So you can find Anirban on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Owen Rask, that Owen R-A-S-K. Uh, you can find us there. And we'll just have a chat with you if you want to jump on there. Um, I'm going to give a special shout out though. We're almost at November 1st, which means the seven investing team are coming out with recommendations, getting a bunch of new recs, including one from yourself, which by the sounds of it could be a bit, um, could be interesting, so to speak. So uh, where can people go to find out you know, how they can get their hands on these recommendations. Just go to 7investing.com forward slash subscribe and use the RASC code if you want to get a discount. Yeah. And as you said, we are on Twitter. Talk yep. to us. Yep. Chat with us. Yeah. I think the whole, the 7 investing team on Twitter is super engaged. Um, I don't think I've seen an investing team so engaged on Twitter before. So um, it's really impressive and you've all got great followings, which um, it's even more impressive that you respond to everyone and you actually have such a good engagement with them. So yeah, you can find the seven investing team on, on Twitter, um, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. If you want to find out more about what we're doing here at RAS, you can head to www.ras.com.au. Um, we have a bunch of free courses. It has this, I'm super proud of this, mate. We've got 
about 11,000, well, we've enrolled around 11,000 students into our courses. So I'm very happy with that. That is brilliant. Yeah. That is brilliant. Yeah. And we do most of this, for those of you who don't know, we do it almost all of it for free. So um, it's all basic stuff and there's some intermediate stuff in there as well for investing. But um, yeah, check those out if you want something to do over the, your weekend. Mate, it's always a pleasure to chat. So thanks for taking the time out for joining me. And thanks to any listeners that um, tuned in live on YouTube. Always a pleasure, Matt. Always a pleasure. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.